Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome all. Over two seasons, I'm a Killer has been binged by audiences around the world. Hailed by critics as true crime at its most brutal, captivating and unsettling, I'm a Killer gives those serving life sentences the opportunity to tell their story face to face and from their own perspective, while interviews with detectives, the victims and their families allow viewers to see both sides. It's impossible to watch without your opinions constantly changing during the course of each episode. My name's Sam Pearson, producer of several crime investigation podcasts, and I'm very pleased that we're joined here today at CrimeCon by those who made the show. Here we have Transistor Films' Danny Tipping, Ned Parker and Zoe Hines to discuss how they tell compelling yet balanced true crime stories. Firstly, though, how did the idea for I Am A Killer come about? We started developing the series about um, four years ago. Uh, we'd, we'd made several true crime series for CNI and, and various other networks, and we were we were working out how, what what could we do next. What could we do next that that moves on the the genre um, and keeps it interesting for us. And, and one of the things we we hadn't done or hadn't explored was um, the voice of the of of the last person to see the victim alive, the, the killer, the the one person that could probably tell us uh, not what happened but but why it happened. Um, and then we started um, quite naively at first, thinking, well, we'll just go and interview people on death row. Um, why doesn't everybody do that? And then we found out. Uh, it's a very, very long process of letter writing and, and, and communication with the prison services and the inmates um, and building up trust from, from both the facilities and the, and the killers um, for them to be able to share their stories. And so we, 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 we did that first. We developed those relationships and built up a, a pile of stories, basically, that we could then pitch to... Um, broadcasters so we started talking to um, a number of broadcasters and it took six eight months ten months to, to start getting people interested and, and it just wasn't happening um, and as is often the case with um, TV series it's they were they were a long time in the, in the making and this or even more so with the, the lengthy protracted letter writing process from the prisons um, and we could send a letter off to a prison and, and we might not hear something back for three months three or four months um, and all the time we're, we're, we're talking to broadcasters and they weren't, weren't having any of it. And, and we were pitching it as um, Death Row Diaries. And there might have been other titles at the time. And um, it wasn't getting picked up. And we changed the, the title to I'm a Killer as a sort of last-ditch attempt. And I sent it out and I got a phone call literally the following day. Um, and we started working with Netflix and, and A&E in the UK um, to bring the series together. 
And and Danny, you and Ned were both working on it from the very start, that's right? Uh, Danny was. I came in a little bit later. Um, so there'd already been about six months or so of right. letters being written. But it was... I didn't come from a true crime background at all. So um, I hadn't done any crime programming of any sort. Okay. And it was kind of interesting sitting down with Danny and just kind of looking at the realities of it, of, of how it might fit. And one of the things which we came across was, I think we were going to tell these stories in quite a linear way. We were going to interview the killer, was what we thought, and then you would kind of intercut their story with other people as you went along. And then we quite quickly realised that uh, in Texas they would only let us talk to them for an hour. And an hour isn't long enough to, to cover an interview, to kind of get through the, the amount of material we needed. And also on top of that, we then realised that, well, once we've interviewed them for an hour, we're not allowed to interview them again for at least three months. Mm. So that's when we kind of came up with the idea of, well, let's have an, have an interview of them at the beginning and an interview of them at the end, kind of bookmarking the, uh, um, bookending the, the, the entire uh, film. So you hear their first interview and you, that's their opportunity for them to speak about uh, themselves, their crime, as the way they see it, largely uncontested. We don't kind of challenge them too much on that. That's their version. And then we went out and we looked at, say, uh, everybody else who had been impacted by the crime or could give an insight to it, always people who had a direct connection to it. And once you've learned all of that, then that second interview is far, far more engaging and revealing and interesting you, can, you might confront them or you might want to really better understand something that they haven't talked about before um so that kind of became the process um so yeah that's what when i came on board we started kind of working out those kind of practicalities of it so the vast majority of these episodes they're based on two hour interviews separated by three months yeah largely so in texas uh, there are states where you can go back slightly sooner but we found that it just worked and that change in the way that they are that you you know they have a lot to get off their chest they haven't got a way of expressing themselves in prison normally they might have been sitting there for 10 15 20 30 years building up this story of themselves and about who they are so actually once they've had a chance and they feel that they've managed to 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 put that across to somebody Three months later down the line, they feel very relaxed and much more different. And, and, and you, can, you can really start to engage with them on, on, on slightly bigger things. They feel they've already said their piece and it, it makes a big difference. I think we've always seen it. Sorry, jump in. But the first interview, interview is their interview and the second interview is our interview. Hmm. That they, they tell their story. And as Ned said, they could be rehearsing it. And they go, they, most of the prisoners are engaged in various counselling sessions and, and um, all sorts of... Um, uh, programs within in the uh, prison system and so they've they've effectively rehearsed that story hundreds of times and I think we get that version both in their letters and then in that first interview and then the second interview the, the skill of the directors involved in the series and so in Ned are, are two of the directors um, uh, is to then push them beyond their not their comfort zone but their sort of pre-rehearsed and, and, the, and the version of the story they're very comfortable with um, to get probably a little bit closer to the truth. And we're very lucky that actually the vast majority, I think, of the 20 episodes we've, we've filmed today, I think there has been a level of honesty and trust and they have given us a um, a version that is is pretty close to truth, not, not in every case. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about those two different interviews, the beginning and the end, is there, I mean, what, what is the difference from, a, from a, an interviewer, from a director's perspective? Is it more 
is it you know you're going in and you're literally just listening to them on the first one and you're just sitting and, and being a face for them to talk to or is it on the, and on the second one you're the one asking the questions and being more forceful what's how is that how is that how is that difference kind of manifest it is that that is a, a pretty good summary of it i would say um the first interview as ned and danny have said they've come with a preconceived idea of what they want to talk about quite often they've got um an agenda they've got something that they you know almost like a bargaining chip that they come to the table with i'll tell you my story but you have to listen to me tell you about my experience with religion or my experience with the justice system or my experience um numerous different things (laughs) but you know principally that first interview they know and you know that you are there to listen to them fundamentally tell you what it means to say I am a killer that is the name of the show that is what we're getting at that's the experience we're exploring what does that mean to them legally ethically practically when they took somebody's life what does I am a killer mean to them the second interview as uh, Ned and Danny already mentioned is far more um, of your classic uh, sort of <laughs> uh, cross cross questioning. What do they call cross, cross examination? There we go. So you, if you think of it in terms of a jury process, you've heard all the other perspectives um, from different people since you last heard from that person, and in order to tell that story responsibly, your n- your job now is to go in and to sort of present them with the different perspectives and to pick up on holes that they might have glossed over or things that they might have twisted slightly and to interrogate that. Now, we see all kinds of responses to that. We see people deliberately trying to manipulate things, but we also see people who genuinely don't see the significance of certain points in their story that are actually to us and to our viewers massively significant. You know, just because they've glossed over something, it might not be maliciously it may well be that they don't understand why anybody would want to know that. I think for me, that's that's always been a really interesting part. You kind of think you're going to hear them spin a version of events, which puts them in a positive light in their first thing. And then you go and talk to everyone else, and then you can, like Zoe says, cross-examine and, and kind of hold them to account on this. And so frequently you find that actually it's not that they've... is that actually their first interview hasn't put them in a good light. Um, and actually there are things which are in their background which they didn't mention or they didn't reference at all, which are, are seriously mitigating factors that will make you... It doesn't make them any less guilty, but it makes them more human uh, and more understandable. I mean, a lot of them with the, the domestic abuse that they've received, which is a continuing factor with the, the murderers we talked to, um, they might not pay reference to it they might not, not not note it at all and once you hear that i think it's a lot easier to understand how they ended up in the place that they did but one of your films did i think is a really good example of that and kind of explains where that comes from i think that um I th- was it joe murphy that said you know i i, I suffered these various abuses like terrible um beatings and and uh physical abuse from his family he said but no more than any other kids i guess so it's a it, it's that kind of for them, it's normal. So it's, it's all about the frame of reference. They thought, well, every kid must grow up with this type of abuse. And that's sometimes why they don't mention it. And to us, they're hugely mitigating circumstances that obviously affect their, 
their outlook and their life and their ability to form relationships and, and everything else. But to them, it's like, well, everybody must suffer that form of abuse, mustn't they? And that's I think, why I think yeah. sometimes why it doesn't come up. Joe, Joey Murphy's one when he said that it was only when he was sentenced to death and then went to death row that he discovered that his life was not normal. That was the first inkling he had, and he was about 22 or something at that point. And, and, and bearing in mind, that, that story came into season two where we'd all, I mean, Zoe Ned, much more so than me, had read thousands of these letters where there's descriptions of the, of the sort of abuse um, in, in, on all levels, sexual, physical, mental abuse that, the, that some of these guys suffered. And Joey's, of all these letters we've read, stood out as the worst. And he didn't realise until the point he was sentenced to death that that wasn't normal it starts to give you a sense of, of the, the background. So it's, it's very difficult, I think, for us to process that and understand. Um, and not that it in any way excuses the act of murder or the violent crimes these guys committed, but it, it helps you understand whether you get to a place where life is perhaps less valuable. And I think that for, for me, which, having not come from a crime background, when, when I was first meeting with Danny about this series, why, why would I want to work on it, was that the focus was trying to better understand both the causes and the consequences of violent crime, of murder. And I thought that's the important part, and I think that's what we've always stuck to, is that in some way you, the, the, the films that we make, you can, it doesn't mean that it excuses anybody at all, but you can understand how these people got to that place. And I think also then to understand what the consequences of, our, of that are, of their actions, of the murder, on, on the victims' families, but also on their families and on them themselves. And I think that's, I do think that, that I'm a Killer is a little different to quite a lot of true crime stuff, is in that's, that's what our purpose is. Try and just understand a little bit more about how it happened and, and what the consequences are. And what, what did you bring? So if, you, if, you, if you're, you're coming from a different background than true crime, what did you bring to I'm a Killer that kind of, that brought that kind of balance, that brought, that told that story? I think it was... I hadn't done a tr had a true crime background, but I had been making quite a lot of um, network television documentaries, which have a kind of a fairly standard pace. We and you know they're broken up by parts, and you um, you know you lead into a part. There's a slight cliffhanger. You know they're conventions that you follow, and I think what we had in this one is that we we didn't write any of these or, or, or structure any of them to have kind of part breaks. Those just came when they came. Um, and we had to teach ourselves that we were going to slow this pace right down. I mean, in a, in, a, in a fairly standard kind of network television documentary, you might have five, six, seven thousand editorial cuts in it. We were presenting films of the same length, which had maybe one and a half thousand. We had a shot. I remember on the first episode, we those, had would, those would be the breaks in the in the in that you see between yeah, two between, yeah, between, two, between scenes. two shots between two scenes. You just it, it just continual camera angle cuts, and the pace is very high. Our pace is very slow, deliberately slow, and we all I think editors, directors, all of us had to kind of fight against what we'd been used to doing for a long time. And we had mm. we had one shot which lasted for thirty seven seconds, mm. un, uncut, just continuous, and all you're hearing is somebody talking. Mm. and you're looking out the window of a car, and it helps you to process the words that they're saying. So I think, I mean, that wasn't solely down to me. Obviously, I'd love to say it was solely down to me, sure. and I was the genius behind let's that, but, um, but uh, let's, let's say, it is. Let's uh, say it is. But no, but I think that's, it was, I, didn't, I hadn't had the conventions of crime, true crime television. And I think that was, uh, was intentional. I mean, Zoe, Zoe had made some, 
at Kyme Docks, but that wasn't your your specialism. And and most of the team were the same. We wanted to, we didn't really want to approach it as a true crime documentary. And the other thing we did very early on, we made the decision not to have any narration, which for us at the time, I mean, I've been working in documentaries for twenty years, and I hadn't made a documentary without uh, a narration track. Mm. up until this point and it scared me to death when we when we all agreed i happily agreed to do it in the room and was very nervous about it afterwards because what the narrator gives you is a massive get out of jail card as a as a filmmaker you you can move the story on you can you can build all the signposts you can answer the questions that your your um, interviewees don't um and it's an extremely useful device and to leave that off and it's very it was unusual at the time for a crime investigation show cni show um and uh, it was yeah. a big, big decision. It meant you had to, you know, the, the, our contributors had to tell the story. Does that keep you honest? It, it does. It makes you, but it, it, and it makes the decision-making process quite different. I mean, Zoe, what did you... I think, uh, going back to your original question, that uh, just because you haven't made crime documentaries in the past, as a documentary filmmaker, you're... Uh, lifeblood is telling human stories. Mm-hmm. It is about um, the peaks of life and the troughs of life and understanding humans and relating to humans. And actually, coming to I'm a Killer was less a case of let's demonstrate our forensic understanding of the criminal process <laughs> and more a case of what is this? Per- what does this person uh, say about what they've been through and what they've lived through? And what can we learn from that? Uh, especially when thrown into relief with others' experiences where they've been affected by the same incident. So um, I actually think not coming from a crime background was probably beneficial for um, the directors involved. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And so, Zoe, you came in a little bit later than both... Well, Danny was right there from the beginning, a little bit later. So are you... Were you season two or no? No, I was a I was a director on series one, director on series and one. then series produced series two. But so, you, but you come in a little bit towards the actual production end of the set. So, you, were you? Did you miss out on a lot of the correspondence? Yeah, in fact, when I came to the first series, the original inmate interview with I was doing two films uh, and filming a third for Ned. Um, the original inmate interviews with my two. Uh, contributors had already been shot Mm -hmm. so I came into a situation where the letters had been exchanged uh, for months and months and months between these inmates they'd agreed to an interview an initial interview that had been shot and then as a director I was told what can you do with this where do you want to go with it yeah which facets of that story are you going to look into who else do you need to speak to um and that felt like an incredibly exciting prospect at the time and uh, started um, what became the next four years of documentary making. <laughs> so, from from your perspective, when you went in and you're taking on the the, the second half, what kind of um, 
you, you, you've already mentioned looking at the, the letters, that they, the, looking back on the letters and trying to pick apart some bits that they mentioned in the original letters and then trying to kind of pick apart, obviously, the story that they're telling you that's been the story that they've been telling everybody for the maybe years and years. What other bits of media are you kind of showing to them? Or what, what you know, is it quotes? Is it pictures? Is it bits of, is it interview footage? What, what, what are you kind of going them? Well, uh I imagine any journalist that approaches a story wants to see everything they can possibly get their hands on. So you're looking for uh, the evidence box associated with the crime, any physical materials. You're also looking for any computerised exchanges relating to the incident. Beyond that, you're looking for um, crime scene footage, uh, archive, family archive materials, videos from... um, childhood and any sort of family photographs that those associated with that individual can provide that will give you some insight into them as a human and are you presenting that to them to the inmate yeah uh no do you what 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 (laughs) would what is there anything that you do present to them on that second interview that helps change the interview in some way yeah we did didn't we yeah we decided we we brought in a, a technique of playing back extracts of some interviews to other interviewees and quite often the best way of uh, using that was to let the voices of the other people that we'd spoken to be played back to the uh, the inmate themselves. I mean, we um, one of the parts of the structure is I'd done jury service a little bit before we uh, were making the first series. And what I noticed with that is that you walk into a court and you hear a witness and then you won't hear from them again. And then you hear the next witness and it changes your perspective of what you've heard. And then a third one. And so we laid our, our films out very much like that. You hear testimony from each person along the way. And I think it works quite well as a conclusion to then remind viewers, remind ourselves of the kind of the, what we think are the salient points and, and get a reaction from, from those inmates uh, once they hear the voice of somebody, especially if it directly uh, um, uh, contradicts something that they've said and somebody's got a very different take. You, you, you get a reaction and you get a, a, an insight to them, which I think is... It's kind of helpful. But I think another part about our, our films is that we don't actually focus on the murder itself, the crime itself. In a lot of the films, we don't focus on it enormously because we know what happened roughly. They admit to those and they don't necessarily contest that. There's not a need to kind of go deeply into the crime. But it is a big need for us to understand it all. So we, we will go through every single document that we can. Our directors and our assistant producers will search through all the crime, uh, all the court evidence, all the police evidence, everything else. And, you know, you could spend weeks and weeks doing it in order to actually bring down all of that information to just two lines of uh, commentary on a card, uh, which just comes up in, in that, because you have to understand it to be able to move the story on. But the story is often about the individuals, the people mm. who've been left behind, the impact it's had on their life or the, or the, uh, the journey that the inmate themselves is going on. Sure. And, 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 and thinking about that, is what are the what are the techniques that you would, or the any suggestions that you would give to interviewees, budding podcasters, either amateur or professional, some of whom might be here at CrimeCon today, that would kind of that you would kind of give to keep them honest and truthful when it when they come to telling crime stories. Are there any kind of key things that you would kind of give them? It's funny we we talked about this um, earlier, and I think the the, the two things you honest honesty and truthfulness. I think if you are um, honest and truthful in your intentions uh to your contributors and you explain very clearly this is the this is the story we're trying to tell whether you have an agenda or not but this is the this is the story this is the part that you play in that story and that you know the the message we want you to deliver then i think you you've you've taken 
several steps in the right direction because um, these aren't our stories to tell. These are factual stories. You know, they are, they are true events and they uh, involve uh, real people. And I think we're, we're trying to, um, just to get to the bottom of it, but what actually happened um, and get as close as we can to the motivations of, of the people involved. Mm. Um, I think we get most of the way there in, in most of the cases. And I think we, we, but we do that by being very clear to the, to the, inmates, the killers, their family members, the families of the victims saying, this is the story we're going to tell. We want you to tell your part of that story and we let them do it. Mm -hmm. And I think if you do that and you apply it to whatever type of documentary you're making, whether it's true crime or anything else, then you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're definitely moving in the right direction. I think I'd agree. I think it's, it's about being an open book. And I think people respond to that. If they know that you don't have a, a hidden agenda, uh, then, then they will respond to that, and I think you are then likely to get the most out of them. But I think the other part is to have, is to have faith in in the material that you're gathering that that's of interest. You don't need to sensationalize to make a, a story fascinating and engaging. I mean, I think sometimes, Zoe, I think we've had people mentioning to us, oh, you know, that you must have found that story with that amazing twist which happened that you didn't think was going to be part of this. We didn't know. The fact is that if you're looking at a human story and it involves somebody killing or somebody losing somebody that they've loved, the fact is that that is going to be, just on a human level, a really engaging story. And there are going to naturally be these twists and turns and things because that's what human life is about. We don't look for those. We don't select cases on the basis that we are going to surprise an audience or with a narrative which they didn't expect. We try to tell the stories in the films which reflects the process of how we learnt about the story and the order that we learnt things and what has therefore engaged us. I think it was a, a hugely different after making the first series and obviously nobody had seen or heard of Iron McKellar. We are trying to explain people what our, uh, you know, what our approach was and, and, and how the films would play. Um, it was very different making the second series because actually you know, Zoe and Ed would be on the phone to potential contributors and say, yeah, we've seen it. We know exactly what you're you're trying to do, um, and most of them responded very positively to that. So it was, um, you know, I think the work spoke for itself. I've got three top tips Go for on. budding interviewers, journos. Number one is preparation. When you are interviewing an inmate, you're going to have a very limited amount of time an hour in Texas. You will literally get tapped on the shoulder and told you've got ten minutes, five minutes. At which point. You may only have got 10% through your questions. So preparation is 100% essential. You've got to know that case back to front so that when something comes in, when the inmate says something that is different to what you're expecting, you can respond to that and know that you're still getting a proper sense of the story that you need to, you need to obtain. That is the purpose, if you like, of your interview. The second thing, contrary to what Ned said... Is boundaries. Yes, you have to be an open book, but any good psychologist will tell you um, establishing what you are there to do, what you expect of them, and negotiating that, giving a little bit of yourself, but remembering you are there in a professional capacity. You don't want this to be about you you want it to be about them and yes you have to accelerate that bond and get to know someone quickly but boundaries are important 
for your sanity, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. So that's tip two. Tip three is listen, not speak all the time. She says speaking all the time. Um, you have two ears versus one mouth for a reason, and there is always subtext to hear. If somebody is going on a big tangent about religion, why are they going on a big tangent about it? Listen to the framing of their answers. Are they telling you that because they want you to think that they're a good person who has morals? What's that telling you about the crime itself? Was there any subtext that they're trying to convey to you? So I would say, uh, you know, there's a million things that can go wrong, but those are my three mm. top tips. And and so and thinking, I guess it's still about that was much better than our answer, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I was going to say yeah, she, she really showed us up there, Danny. We did it in the wrong order there, really, to be honest. Um, you, you can cut me and Danny out. Yeah, I'll, let's, yeah. I'll put, it in the, put it in the other order. Um, so thinking about the kind of like the podcast landscape, going back to you know the the, the framing of the original the, the, the question there, the new media landscape, podcasts, um, you know, audiobooks, it's obviously a very different and divergent field. It's incredibly like it's spreading the reach of true crime massively. How does that kind of sit with you guys as? mainly tv broadcasters and you know are you are you doing different things funny you should say that um no i think firstly that the podcast the true crime podcast um field is is fascinating because the stories do work so well um in 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 audio form um and obviously it's, it's incredibly popular and we've we've got um uh we've been working with podomo on a series called uh letters from a killer which makes um uh, use of those thousands of letters we talked about earlier. Um, there's a whole raft of them that we haven't, for various reasons, been able to film, whether it's access issues with, with certain states that don't allow um, cameras into, uh, into maximum security prisons, or, um, well, a whole raft of issues. And, um, but they're brilliant, brilliant stories, and the letters are really compelling, and, and stories that we've sat and, and told over endlessly, like, how are we going to tell these? How can we bring them to an audience? We're not allowed to film them. Um, and podcasting has given us the opportunity, and Letters from a Kid has given us the opportunity to tell those stories um, that we, we wouldn't otherwise be able to, to bring to an audience. And so, um, you know, that, those years of, of research and the piles of letters have now got an outlet. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, uh, it, you know, it's, been, it's been brilliant for us. And, and to be able to revisit cases that are on our, almost our wish list of stories sure. to tell. Um, and so that's uh, it's been a, a fantastic opportuni opportunity. And to put in the second plug, so yes, there is the podcast Letters from a Killer, which is obviously available, but um, the book, Macmillan are publishing uh, an I'm a Killer book in February of uh, next year, of 2022, and that's looking at 10 of the cases, of the 20 cases that we've, we've already covered. But I think what's interesting in your question is about, about those different media formats. And they are, we're looking at similar stories. It's, this, you know, it's, for, it's from this, the same research work that we've done. But these different formats allow for something very different. I've, we found that the book, we think, really complements uh, um, the, the films that we've made. Mm -hmm. Those films are, are, are constrained by the, the duration that you can have and, and the pacing that you allow. You can have an awful lot more information in the book, but in a book you don't get to, 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 to be visually in those places. So they, they provide a very different function. I think they complement each other. And I think the same happens with the podcast. The podcast, you can get more, you know, the podcast, Zoe and I talking, we can, we can put forward an opinion mm -hmm. that we have about something or the way that we, a particular letter might make us individually feel or how we might view a killer at that stage of reading a letter. 
we deliberately don't do that in our films because yep. we think it's really important for the viewer to be left to, we provide the viewer with everything that they need to make their own assessment and their own judgment. So I think these different medias, I think, work really well for exploring sometimes the same stories, sometimes just similar stories. I think there's a, a place for all of them, and I think they complement each other. I think we might have time to squeeze out a couple of questions. I've got one question right at the front here, so I'm going to pass you the mic over. Um, I actually have two questions, if you have time to answer them. Uh, the first one is, uh, for someone who's interested in true crime, with or without a background in crime, um, how do they go about working on a documentary like I Am A Killer? And my second question is, um, if there are cases that really impacted you and stood out to you, what made them stand out? You can do the first one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's... No, you can definitely do the first bit. This is uh, your, okay. your area. <laughs> uh, well, for a start, most people don't walk into making documentaries like I'm a Killer. I worked in daytime television making films about washing machines and mortgages for at least four or five years at the start of my career. Um, formal education is great, but you don't need to go down that route. If you are interested in the stories and interested in the journalism, especially with avenues like podcasting, blogging, um, you know, there are so many places where you can start writing, start engaging with the people that are in these professions and communicating with them. If you've got ideas, you can write to production companies and tell them about them, you know, get on the radar. You're looking at research roles and there are many, many schemes out there now, far more than there were 10 years ago, uh, which use words like access. We want to bring different perspectives into this industry. Um, so it's just a question of looking out for, for those avenues. And, and, you know, if you're interested, start making the content. Make it yourself because with you, there's a democratisation of media now. There's YouTube, there's TikTok. You know, you can do journalism in so many new exciting ways i think also the projects like ours like i'm a killer if, that, if that's the sort of thing you're particularly interested in are extremely research heavy and they have a well certainly in our company a large base of of um researchers at various stages in their careers and their experiences so targeting production companies that are making the sorts of shows you like um and, and putting yourself forward we wouldn't we certainly um aren't looking when we're recruiting for people that have made shows like i'm a killer um, but that people that demonstrate, um, you know, excellent research skills and written skills and, and um, uh, you know, the sort of level of maturity that we would expect. But, I mean, true crime experience is very far down our list of um, attributes, isn't it, when we're looking to recruit? Because, as these guys said, they hadn't done it either. And the second question was, which stories stick out and what and why? What, yeah. Yeah. Why I think specifically makes them stick out to you? Yeah, what I think we've all got probably got different ones. I think the there are the, the, we've read thousands less of these guys more, more than me, but um, they are some of them are, are are shocking and awful and upsetting, um, and it's generally the ones that stick out where the, the, some of the character comes through in the letter writing. You, you got you get a sense of who that person is that's writing to you because they do. It's not that we. I don't think any of us that have been doing it have become. Um, blasé or um, immune to, to what we're reading but every now and then somebody's personality comes out you, you, you read something that feels like they're telling the truth 
and it's a little bit surprising and it catches your eye. And I think it's those ones that we rise to the top of the part and that, that one of these guys or, or, or Jason, who uh, Jason Oates is um, our, our head of development that's been running this, you know, wrote the very first letter um, four or five years ago. And he, when he's, he reads a letter like that, you know, somebody will stand up and say, here's one. Um, you know, and it's it's usually because you get a real sense of who that person is that's writing to you. Um, so I think that's what generally catches the eye. And uh, one one final question. So, out of all of the twenty cases that you did, um, which one was the scariest to interview? I was very lucky. I've not had to interview anyone scary, um, uh, but I do. James Robertson, who was the first the first inmate uh, in the first series of films um, who kind of looks like he's come out of central casting for, for kind of a, a psychopathic killer. He's big, he's, he's got a shaved head, he leers, he's got missing teeth. And he was in Florida, um, and I do know that Ross and Stu, who were the, uh, the director and the producer who went to interview with him, uh, were surprised to suddenly find that they didn't have a room with glass or separation. So he was sat on a chair right in front of them, shackled, um, and that kind of gave them some some com- confidence, some reassurance that he was shackled apart from when they left. And, they, and I think Stu mentioned to the guard, he said, oh, thank, thank goodness he was shackled because it got a bit scary a couple of times. He says, oh, with James, that wouldn't have made any difference. <laughs> and that was, he's, he's like, oh, I'm glad I know that now at the end of that, that thing, but we have got to go back in a couple of months. This, uh, this, is, this is a guy that had killed one of his cellmates in prison to get on death row. So his violence um, armed with nothing but a sock. So yeah. I mean, he's, his he's, yeah. his violence hadn't stopped when he arrived at prison. It actually got worse. Um, so he he's probably the uh, most physically intimidating. Or as it happened, I don't think would have hurt a fly at that stage in his in his career. But you've you've met a couple of interesting, lovely gentlemen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, nothing like that though. I mean, I, uh, Charles Thompson in series one. He uh, is. Uh, as I said earlier, the consummate narcissist. Uh, we finished his interview and I finished his interview and he beckoned me to the glass and asked me to pick up the telephone and he said, if you show what you have just told me that you're going to include in this pro programme, you personally are signing my death warrant. Um, and he is a scary person. He is through the glass. But that fear that came then was a different kind of fear. That was a kind of, am I, are we doing the right thing? Is that true? You know it's not. Your common sense. I didn't shoot two people dead. He did. He put himself there. He should have known that we would have found the evidence that we did find, which had been shown in open court and then retracted, yada, yada, yada. The point is, there are unexpectedly scary moments um um, you know i've certainly never i've never had an experience like ross and Stu with somebody luckily shackled i've been more scared by some of the additional contributors (laughs) that we've interviewed i just think about filming in in small unusual rural towns in in across the u.s and ending up in kind of going, oh, I don't want to stay here. Uh, This camera on our shoulder looks very expensive and seems to be drawing attention. Uh, I'd like to kind of go somewhere else for a bit. I think that's more more scary than the prisoners often. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Danny Tipping, Ned Parker and Zoe Hines for joining us at CrimeCon today and for all you guys as well. 
For more podcasts and videos of interviews and sessions from Crime Con, search for and subscribe to Crime Investigation on YouTube. And if you haven't already, you can catch up on both seasons of I'm a Killer on, on Crime Investigation. All you need to do is search on your uh, whatever provider you're on. Or search for our collection of podcast series wherever you listen and stream many of our other excellent TV shows through Crime Investigation Play. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.